Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Kyle, you look weird. What are you doing? I'm eating. I have to eat constantly or my teeth will grow. But since when do you eat trees? I mean, that's a tree, right? It's a young second growth tree. I use older trees when I built my lodge over there. You just seem so different. What happened to you? I was visiting my cousin Adrian in Maine. He's doing all kinds of weird research with gamma rays, and I was standing outside when one of his gamma rays passed through a beaver and then through me. And since then, I've been like this. This is horrible. I'm so, so sorry this ever happened to you. We're going to get you the best help that modern science has to offer. No, is that what you came here for? To make me feel bad about myself? I like being a beaver. I have an extra transparent eyelid for seeing underwater. Do you have that? No, this is the perfection I've always sought. I eat, I swim, I eat some more, I... Oh, hold on. What was that all about? I only poop in the water, okay? Why are you so angry? You try passing something with that many wood chips in it and see if you're in a good mood. Kion, this is no way to live, and I want you to... Wait, wait, shh. Do you hear that? Hear what? I can't believe you don't hear that. A trickle? A tiny trickle. Do you hear that? It's a leak. I've got a leak in my lodge. Oh, this is bad. This is bad, bad, bad. Beaver's worst nightmare. Where is it? I don't see it, but I hear it. I gotta fix it. A leak! You need to introduce the show now. You did this, didn't you? You put a leak in my lodge because you hate that I'm a beaver. I curse your pink, hairless body with no tail and your lack of an overbite. Well, here's a show about the world's greatest animal, me. And now a personal friend of Jerry Mathers, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, actually, that's a different beaver. Um... Although we, th- I thought about maybe just playing a little bit of an episode uh, from Leave it to Beaver, and then I just thought it's too much of a cliche, and we traffic in enough cliches as it is. So we are going to be talking about uh, the beaver today, our friend the beaver. And if the beaver really is our friend, we have not always been the beaver's friend. I'm, in fact, if, this, if we and the beaver were a relationship, we would have handled over the course of human history, particularly North American human history, that relationship wrong 95% of the time, probably, or so. Whereas the beaver, left to his or her own devices, uh, is handling the relationship pretty well. Um, obviously, we have to learn to live, to, live together, but uh, I think probably they've done a better job of trying to do that anyway than we have. So we're going to tell you a lot of things today about beavers, uh, and, and particularly about the role that they play in the ecosystem and the role that they can play, the positive role that they can play as the ecosystem that we messed up uh, and requires new kinds of help. We're also just going to tell you a lot about beavers. And it just turns out beavers, like Betsy Kaplan has become a beaver expert over the last day or so because the beavers are so rewarding to learn about because every time you learn something about them, it's for the most part good. You know, I mean, they're kind of monogamous family animals and they're really smart and they they really do work all the time. And they're hospitable. And they uh, In their lodges in the winter, they sometimes have muskrats and deer mice and frogs and insects. And I mean, they're all, you know, it's like they're running a hotel. 
Um, not for nothing is it called a lodge, I guess. So as, as we go along here today, you'll just discover that these are fantastic animals. But we're going to start with the thing that propelled us into this story, and that was learning a little bit more about this reappreciation, uh, rethinking of the beaver in a way, and the role that the beaver plays on the landscape. So joining us now is Jim Robbins, a freelance journalist based in Montana and a frequent contributor to the, to the New York Times, where he did recently write about this very thing, the author of several books, including his most recent, The Man Who Planted Trees, Lost Groves, Champion Trees, and An Urge to Save the Planet, very apropos of what we're going to talk about here. Also, uh, Heidi Perryman, she's a child psychologist and the founder of Worth a Damn. Oh, we'll tell you more about that as we go along. Later in the show, you'll hear <coughs> a living legend, Sherry Tippy, is kind of the rock star of, uh, of beaver reclamation. Uh, she'll be joining us a little bit later. I, I, I would try to describe Sherry Tippy, but I would fail. Uh, also, Rachel Poliquin will be with us. She's a freelance writer and curator. She's got a new book, Beaver, uh, and she's going to talk a little bit about sort of beaver myths, things that we believe about beavers, which are not true, uh, and ways in which our prejudices have led us to mistreat the beaver. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now. And Jim Robbins, I'm going to start with you. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. And hello, Heidi. I hear you uh, in the background there, too, I think. Hello. Thank you. Jim, I'm going to start with you. The article that you wrote in the New York Times is something that's been covered elsewhere, too. Uh, This notion that one thing that beavers can do, given the right opportunity, is positively transform a landscape, and a landscape that increasingly may need transforming. We're looking at drought all over the country now. We're looking at situations where the snow mass doesn't hold, doesn't really, it isn't the safety deposit account for water that it used to be. And, and so beavers, when they introduce themselves into an environment, can actually have kind of an interestingly positive effect. I'll let you pick up the story. Explain what that effect is. Well, that effect is beavers build a dam in order to back up water and create a pond, which is a is their safety zone where they can build a, a lodge and, and enter the lodge underwater, which essentially keeps out predators. And um, what they do when they build these ponds is they raise the water level of not only of the of the stream but the, the groundwater level. And if you have a series of these dams along a stream, you can ha- really um, impound in a lot of water and raise the water level to the point where these streams are reclaimed. And that's that was the tours that we did for the story, looking at some of these streams. And sometimes it's beavers that build these dams, but there's also ways to kind of go to school on the beaver dams and build dams that mimic what they're doing as well, which they call, appropriately enough, beaver mimic dams. So um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's seen as a way to, in it very inexpensively, if not completely money-free, of, of in reinstalling um, dams and allowing the water to be impounded and to come up and naturally reclaim the environment along streams where d- beavers have been, you know, removed or, or not allowed to come back. Mm-hmm. Not appropriate in every place, but certainly in some places it's it's a very strategic use of beaver dams to, to uh, maintain not only water, but what happens after a beaver builds a dam is you get... Um, a return of a lots of different kind of biodiversity. You get more grasses, succulents, trees in some cases, although beavers do take down trees, they also bring trees back, and that in turn brings back other wildlife, songbirds, for example. So one of the things that's driven my reporting is how we can kind of learn the, the important roles that nature play and the things that they can do for us, because a lot of times we've forgotten what those are, and and this is a way of kind of utilizing nature for its for its benefits, whether it's trees or beavers or uh, any number of species. 
Yeah, watching uh, the PBS documentary about this was amazing. Uh, watching situations where something that was essentially a Nevada desert uh, became a biodiverse a- area with wet- with wetland and marsh, uh, and yeah, and habitat habitat for sandhill cranes or mule deers or I mean, depending on where in the country you are, a, a lot of uh, species will will come back around this area that was completely arid and not really life supporting uh, prior to that. And I guess also it's the depth of these ponds too. They they run deep, and and, and the bottom of them. Is is all kind of channeled uh, by the beavers in, in ways that, that they need, uh, but that also creates a pond that's less likely to evaporate and can, can, uh, can hold up to heat a, a little bit better. So Heidi Perriman, with all that in mind, uh, you're in California uh, where uh, drought is not simply uh, something we speculate about. It's something that you live through. So uh, what kind of roles are the beavers playing right now? Well, I think California has really under-recognized the value of the beaver. We're probably one of the only cities that has worked hard to live with beavers in Martinez, California, where I'm from. And what we see is that the beaver activity has allowed us to have all this new wildlife now. We have otter and mink and steelhead and wood ducks. And this would never have been possible without the beaver dams. Jim Robbins, as you were sort of suggesting earlier, we have to be a little bit realistic about this. I mean, this has been a shaky relationship for a long time. And there are situations in which a beaver dam is kind of either not appropriate or because of what humans have done, uh, it represents uh, either a nuisance or an actual safety hazard. A beaver dam that breaks can actually wipe out a road, uh, and it's not unusual to see them flooding houses. So so, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the balancing act that gets done around that? I mean, I think we've moved around a Long from just randomly dynamiting their dams, but but uh, on the other hand, there are situations where you kind of don't want a beaver. Yeah, I visited a, a place near Butte, Montana, which is south of here, and um, they have brought the beaver back into, into the Silverbow Valley. They understand the role that it plays in storing water and allowing that water to slowly drain, rather than having a storm hit and having the water, or when the snow melts, having the water just rush down a a mountainside and into a river and, and disappear, they realize the importance of, of beaver dams for impounding water and allowing it to release slowly so that the people in the valley can use it for agriculture or drinking water or whatever. But there are places down low in the valley where they've had beaver problems. One place in particular, there's a culvert, a big culvert. It's near a park and there are a bunch of homes around the park and the beavers have kept building their dams in this culvert. They see the culvert as kind of a half-completed dam, and they come in there, and they've stopped up the, the culvert and, and build the dam to make their pond, to make their, their lodges. Well, what happens is when they stop up the culvert, it backs up the water, and it floods the park and, and floods the homes, and people can't use the park, and the homes get water in the basement. And so the beavers kept coming, and they kept trapping them out and shooting them out, and they kept coming back because if there's one thing a beaver can't stand, it's the sound of running water. They are hardwired to want to stop running water. And in the story, I talk about how uh, a beaver reintroduction expert had beavers in his basement in preparation of taking them into the backcountry at Yellowstone, and every time he flushed the toilet, upstairs, the beaver would scratch and claw at the cage in order to get to that water to try and stop it up. So it's hardwired in their genetics. So what they did in the case of this persistent beaver in Butte was build 
something that's generally called a beaver deceiver. It's a big wooden frame with mesh around it that doesn't allow the beaver to get to the source of that running water, and it fools the beaver, and the beaver essentially can't dam it, so it, it goes away and the water maintains its flow. It's fairly inexpensive to build, but it allows beavers to stay on the landscape in other places, but not in those places where they cause problems and damage. I've even I even saw some uh, footage uh, of um, before I think the beaver deceiver was invented. Uh, this uh, wildlife expert in, uh, in in Canada, who they had the same problem in, in some kind of wildlife preserve where the beavers were flooding all kinds of things, and he actually had a like a boombox I think or something that had running water on it, and he actually put it up on the dam and it was driving the beavers nuts, and they tried to bury it with mud. <laughs> That's how much they hated it. So Heidi, one of the things that kind of comes up here, and I know from reading your blog that this is something that, that's uh, very important to you. I mean, everything that Jim is saying argues for consideration of a question, which is, do we need to regulate the number of beavers that, that they are, that are out there and where they are and, and, and what they're doing and, and possibly reduce their population, to put it euphemistically? Or will the beavers figure this out themselves? Will the beavers, left to their own devices, basically regulate their own population? And I know that you have a little bit of a battle uh, or a beef with the U.S. Wildlife Service around this question. <laughs> Well, I think that beaver populations tend to expand after people do a lot of trapping. Um, They tend to restore their numbers to what the habitat can sustain, and then they tend to stabilize. And people really underestimate the fact that we used to have millions more beavers in America in the northern hemisphere than we have right now. And we're about 10% of our population. I know that you're also very interested in, I'm sitting about a three-hour drive from the Quabbin Reservoir. It's Massachusetts Reservoir, which was actually created uh, in the early part of the 20th century when four towns were flooded including my mother's hometown, so I know a lot about the quad. Uh, and so they, um, they've they been doing, uh, I think you, you saw the same story that I saw, they have like a 62-year-long beaver survey. They've been sort of watching yeah. uh, the beaver population there without any real manipulation, just kind of seeing what goes on when beavers are pretty much left to their own devices, as it were. And I, I would imagine that's of great interest to you. Well, um, Massachusetts is kind of a unique population because they had a voter law in 1996 that outlawed trapping using conibear traps, except for um, which is a typical beaver trap, except for in rare cases. And this has really become an issue in lots of Massachusetts because they really are confused as to whether these beavers can be, um, they don't allow relocation. Um, can the population be sustained? There are people who are doing great work in Massachusetts installing flow devices or uh, methods to allow beavers to remain without flooding. And that's really what we did in Martinez, which was we installed a, what's called a caster master, which, which isn't a beaver deceiver because those only affect culverts. Our problem was that the dam was too high, and it was people were worried it was going to flood our city. So we installed this pipe that's protected, kind of like the guy in Canada, the limiters you saw in the documentary. And um, that controlled our dam height. It's been working for seven years. And because that problem was solved, we were able to just focus on what the beavers could do for our community. 
Jim, one thing that we should say is that uh, based on everything that we've ever seen or everything we've ever heard from any kind of wildlife expert or anybody else trying to deal with this problem, if you try to out-engineer the beavers, you're going to lose. If you try to blow, if you try to blow up their dams or, or do something else to them, uh, I read the, uh, a piece by one guy in Colorado who said that in all the work that he'd been doing with this, he felt like he was basically training the next generation of beaver engineers. You know, <laughs> everything that he tried, they were just they would immediately figure out something to do about it. Uh, he was just making the beavers uh, a little bit smarter, uh, a little bit more ready for the next person who came along and tried to do that. I mean, it's important to say they are amazing and they're better than we are at controlling water. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that you know, if you think about what a beaver does, if it's out there and it's got this this second step to its thinking that a lot of animals don't have, which is it creates a dam to back up the water to create a pond that it's no, it knows it's going to be safe from predators from. So it's got a house that's underwater. So there's a, an extra level of thinking that I know I've just finished a book about birds, and some birds do this two- or three-step thinking, and beavers do that. And it's very unusual in the animal world, and it's, it's really quite something to watch them build a dam and then build a house in the pond because they know that the underwater entrance is going to keep them safe from predators. So it's really hard to outthink a beaver. It's working in its element, and it knows what it's doing. Heidi, a lot of the problem here is that for a huge portion of America, beaver equals pest, right? It's a right. it's an animal that floods the road, it floods the golf course, it floods something. Uh, this is a problem. You got to get rid of the beavers. You blow up their dam. They build it again. They flood the road again. So a lot of this is um, is maybe trying to call a little bit more attention to what these animals are, who these animals really are. Right. I know you actually do sort of a, a beaver festival, right? I mean, is we that sort do of part a beaver of beaver festival every year? This year will be our eighth one, and what we're trying to do is to teach cities how and why to live with beavers and really make it clear that solutions are very available, they aren't expensive, and they do work for the long term. Whereas if you trap out your beavers, if you kill off your beavers, you're going to get more beavers the following year, and you're going to have to pay for it again next time. So what, what happens at the Beaver Festival? I mean, is there a parade? Is there a homecoming we king have, and queen? Is uh, there? We have events and uh, activities for children. We have wildlife groups from all over the state kind of teaching how beavers help wildlife in general. And one of the things that we really have enjoyed is kind of connecting with the community to allow individual voices to really change the policy. I mean, originally, Martinez was going to do just what every city pretty much in America does when they have beavers in their creek, which is they were going to kill them. So we were able to force them to solve the solution in a different way by bringing in an expert from back in 2007. We had to go all the way to Vermont to get an expert. We had to go get Skip Lyle, 3,000 miles. So, and now there are experts all over the country. There are websites all over to teach about this. There wasn't back then. So, Jim, um, you know, uh, bearing in mind even what your new book is about, I mean, this is um, a, a way into a larger conversation that, that 
Um, this is an animal that has been used a certain way. I mean, for you know a couple hundred years, basically, all we did was kill it and put it on our heads. Uh, and then it started to be viewed in an era of development as this problematic species that was interfering with development. It does seem as though we have been, we're being called upon right now as a species and as a society to think a little bit differently about how we interact with our own environment and what, what the animals are there for. I mean, they're not just there to be exploited by us or gotten rid of by us if they seem to be in our way. Does this make you sort of McKibbenishly hopeful that, that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll look at the beaver and, and sort of get it? I think so. I, I mean, all of nature. I'm an intellectual pessimist, but a glandular optimist. And I, I see a lot of bad stuff going on, but I also feel hope, and people are hopeful. And, and this is the beaver is one example. I think what's going on is people are, are starting to realize in a big way that nature has a wisdom. And it's, it's not that it hasn't been there, it's that we haven't appreciated it. One example that has to do with forest uh, in New York, they were going to build, years ago, they were going to build a new sewage treatment plant, excuse me, water treatment plant for the water for New York, $8 billion. Instead, they decided to protect a forest north of um, New York in the Adirondacks for $1.5 billion because trees filter water and they clean water quite nicely. And so we are starting to appreciate the role that nature plays in our lives. And sometimes it's, it's a nice thing, but it's also an economic thing. And it's kind of a way, too, of honoring other kinds of life, not just human life, and as, as kind of coexisting with them. So I think it's a win-win situation. And I, I see a bit of a revolution going on in this regard now, and that's kind of what I've covered for the Times and in my books. All right. We can only hope. Um, let's uh, grab a quick break here. We'll come back uh, with more. I think we're going to talk a little bit more when we come back about how we how did we get into this mess with the beavers? How did we wind up on the wrong side of the dam from the beavers? Well, I'm going to take a big brown beaver and she stuck him up in the air. Said I sure do love this big brown beaver and I wish I did have a pair. Well, the beaver was stuck for seven days and it gave us all an awful fright. So I tickled his chin and I gave him a pinch and Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. As you can tell, we've got a lot of fabulous guests here about beavers, uh, but we're sort of saving for last for the very end of the show. 
the Springsteen of beavers, and that's Sherry Tippy. She really is the rock star of at least of beaver relocation, beaver dropping and relocation. Uh, but we've got all kinds of wonderful guests here. All right, so um, Heidi's still with us. Uh, before we add Rachel, let's go to Maureen in East Haddam. Hi, Maureen. Um, hi, Colin. What's on your mind? I'm so glad that you're doing this show on beavers because um, uh, my husband and I have been really lucky to have beavers here on our farm that we've had. Um, we've been living with them for the past decade, and uh, I can attest to everything positive thing that you guys have been saying about them. You know, they've cleared invasive brush, and they basically reclaimed an overgrown, you know, pasture that was near the pond that they live in. And last year, especially during a long, you know, period without rain, I would notice that other water, you know, water areas or um, in the area would dry up or mm-hmm. were drying up. Spots I had seen never dry up were dry, and our ponds were not. Yeah. No, actually, well, Heidi can confirm this, that there are parts of the country that are experiencing drought right now where... Uh, basically, one rancher may be asking another rancher who does have beavers if he can come over with, uh, and, with some and of his livestock. His cattle or water, take water from his his wells. Um, you know, there's research from Glennis Hood out of Alberta that says that um, during a drought, beaver beaver ponds had nine times more water than equivalent areas without beaver. That is an unbelievable amount of water. And you have to think about they're not only keeping the water on the land, they're also keeping the water underground. So the aquifer is restored because of that ponding that the beaver is doing. Uh, that's Heidi Berryman. She's going to be with us for a while. You can find out more about her. You can just Google worth a damn, I think, and you will find uh, uh, Heidi pretty quickly. Uh, let's add uh, for her second appearance on our show, uh, Rachel Poliquin is back with us. Uh, she was the author of The Breathless Zoo, Taxidermy and the Cultures of Longing. We did a whole show about taxidermy. Her new book, Beaver, uh, for uh, for the animal series of a book publisher whose name I can't pronounce, uh, is due out in 2015. Uh, Rachel, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. So let's sort of go back in time. I mean, we've been talking for a while on this show about all the good that beavers do, that they can do, um, and and that there is beginning to be a reappraisal. Even ranchers who might have seen them as pests 20 years ago are starting to realize that in a drought, yeah, you do want those guys creating ponds, ponds that don't evaporate during droughts and creating whole new ecosystems and bringing back biodiversity that's uh, vanished from certain landscapes. But it wasn't always thus. In most of the story of at least uh, New World settlers and beavers has been a pretty unpleasant one. But just begin by telling us, I mean, sort of in, uh, in legend, who or what have beavers been? I mean, what's the, what's the sort of uh, uh, story of beaver iconography all, all through human history? Well, beavers have an extraordinarily rich and extraordinarily bizarre cultural history. Um, there are actually two species of beavers. There's the Eurasian beaver and then the North American beaver. And the Eurasian beaver, and the stories go back to Aesop's fables and um, Hippocrates. And Aesop actually wrote a crazy fable about the beaver because they have uh, these scent glands, which are in the lower posterior region of the animal. The ancients believed that these scent glands were actually testicles. Mm. And they used them because they were so potently smelly. They used them in all kinds of... um, medical remedies and Hippocrates actually recommended beaver testicles in these remedies. But Aesop determined that um, the beaver, when chased by the hunter for these scent glands, 
would actually uh, self-castrate himself to leave the organs behind so that he could escape with his life. When we, say, when beaver, we, say, when we say determined, we should emphasize uh, he, he thought he had determined that. <laughs> thought he had determined. And so the, the beaver became this moral of chastity and austerity and prudence of, of why, why lose your life for a few possessions. Uh, and so it had this really rich um, cultural tradition throughout the ancient world and then the Christian moralists um, in the medieval period absolutely loved this story because it um, it symbolized cast off all your evils and your sins and give them to the devil so you can escape with a pure life. And so that was one really potent and strange um, history that the beaver carried with it for a very long time. And it wasn't until about the 16th century that someone dissected the beaver with sufficient uh, anatomical clarity to determine that these weren't actually their testicles and that there was no part of the story which was true. But uh, castorum, which came from the castor sacs, was continued to be used as a medicine, mainly for gynecological complaints, which is somewhat bizarre, uh, well into the 18th century. Uh, and so it has this really rich um, uh, medical and uh, moralistic tradition. Uh, that's certainly one great story of the beaver. Oh yeah, but I mean, and castor is castor oil, which I mean was used long after that. Is that from a beaver? No, and that's I find that a really crazy thing. And I spent a lot of time trying to find out how castor oil actually got its name because it comes from uh, this very toxic plant. With the ancients had all kinds of different names for it. They called it uh, the palm of Christ. Um, and they had, they had this is an incredibly rich history. And I take it to this one guy who decided to bring in this particular plant into England in about the 18th century, who determined it would be called castor oil, I guess, because castorum had such a, a, a rich um, history within the, the English particular medical system. But there is, there is no connection whatsoever, but they kind of picked up where castor oil left off. You know, Heidi Perryman, as you're listening to this, you know, back to this uh, idea that the Christian moralists uh, associated beavers with chastity. Uh, that's not quite true. But beavers, they, I mean, a Christian moralist really could construct a pretty good story around beavers. As far as I can tell, they're pretty monogamous and they're very family oriented. Well, it takes a long time to raise a beaver family. Beavers only enter estrus once every year for 12 hours. So you only have a very short time to reproduce, which is why probably beavers are monogamous because not much time to find Mr. Right. And um, so what we know is it also takes, you know, two or three years to raise beaver children. So beavers' families are really essential to the structure of how they live. Uh, beavers get trained on the job with their parents all the time. And we've been able to watch that firsthand for seven years here in Martinez. Yeah, there's a big learning curve to being a beaver as opposed to a lot of other kinds of animals. So the yearlings, for example, you know, they're not really ready to take over like a whole beaver Absolutely. operation. You know, one of the things we always see with yearlings, which we kind of describe as teenagers, is that they um, they bite off way more than they can chew. Like if you see a tree being chewed, that is a huge tree that will never fall. It's always a yearling that's doing it because they get kind of... Um, you know, excited and eager to do what they need to do. Um, we, we've seen kids, you know, struggling to work along their parents and get trained on the job. And you can really see a, a change over time of their skill. 
And uh, even though beaver brains aren't huge, beavers are not geniuses, but they do tremendous on-the-job training. Um, so, Rachel Bolligman, there's so many uh, things that, that we want to cover from the lore of beavers with you. Um, uh, I certainly, uh, like most people, have heard that there's a 400-strong a beaver workforce on a beaver gulag of some kind in the north woods of Canada. Uh, can, uh, can you tell me more, first of all, about that legend and then confirm the absolute truth of it also? <laughs> well, the legend seems to date to the early arrival of Europeans in North America. And I assume when they first came here, there were extraordinary, amazing beaver dams that had been around for centuries. And because beavers are rodents, and um, most European naturalists thought rodents were the most lowly of creatures, they had no understanding of how such a lowly animal would actually be able to construct dams, which, I mean, there are some dams which can be up to a kilometer long. And so I think that was the origin of them really trying to struggle and figure out how this was possible, that they thought, well, obviously 400 beavers must get together to do such things. But it's, I think the first, uh, the first mention of the legend comes towards the end of the 17th century, but it really took off in the 18th century, which is the moment of the, the Enlightenment, and people were thinking about what, what was the ideal political structure, how could humans function together, was some sort of authority required for humans to get together for cooperation. And so it was repeated over and over again by various um, naturalists, but also um, some of the big top names in the Enlightenment and great philosophers who applied to the 400-strong beaver workforce, whatever political structure they thought was the most ideal, whether they preferred to live in an authoritarian regime or whether they thought that there was such a thing as utopia and we could all get together without without an overlord, and it was repeated over and over again um, throughout the 18th century, and you finally get its, its sort of crescendo in the writings of some of the romantics, even in, into the early 19th century. I was told that it was an anarcho-syndicalist commune in which each, each, each beaver took turns being an executive officer for one day, but all substantive decisions of that officer had to be ratified by two-thirds of the voting beavers. Um, uh, you know, just because time is short, time is fleeing, uh, and, and it seems to fit to Tierra del Fuego. This is a pretty amazing story because, you know, most of what we've been saying today with Heidi, with Jim, we'll be saying it more with Sherry when she gets here, uh, is kind of about how, in fact, beavers can, if properly handled and related to, enrich a landscape and, and really make things better and stimulate the growth of trees by clearing out certain uh, trees and, and creating room for growth and stuff like that. Now, Tierra del Fuego is a slightly different story. And this is a case where you can watch in black and white footage in uh, 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 dating back to, I think, 1946, an ecological disaster <laughs> unfold before your eyes. So uh, I'll let you take over the story, though, Rachel. Yeah, in 1946, they brought 50 beavers down to the Terra del Fuego Islands in the hopes of starting a fur trade, and they just let them loose down there in the bottom of the world. And the fur trade flopped. No one really, the fur trade kind of flopped around the world at around that point, and no one really took notice of these 50 animals down there. And, of course, it's just prime beaver territory down there. There's water, there's trees, there's very few humans. And they have just gone absolutely crazy. And from the 50 animals that were originally left, there are now 200,000 beavers munching and doing their ways through the ecology um, of, of South America. And one of the problems is these 
is South American, the southern beech tree is one of the few trees that is down there. And it just didn't evolve to be chewed by beavers. They don't like their, have their roots wet. They, they, they are dying and they are not growing back. And so the beavers are just continuously moving from island to island um, and just destroying the ecology of um, the islands. And so they now made it onto the mainland and the beavers are being seen on the mainland. And so uh, I think in 1981, Argentina released their first uh, hunting licenses. So there's now a bounty on beavers. Uh, and uh, I think in the, the 90s, Chile determined that they were a harmful species. But just recently, they are now mounting a binational um, agreement to eradicate these 200,000 beavers from, from this, this, the southern islands. And so they determine it's going to take about nine years to complete, and it's going to cost about $35 million. And they're going to go from helicopters from island to island, shooting and destroying 200,000 animals, which is just extraordinary and, and horrifying. And, and as you say, um, there have been two continental waves of beaver obliteration, first in Eurasia and then in North America. And now this third one is is being mounted to start. And uh, on the one side, there's great benefits to the very, very pristine, unique ecology of South America. But I mean, beavers are about the size of a Labrador dog. What are they going to do with 200,000 Beavers. It's mm. it's a horrifying thing. Right. I, I understood that part of the problem is that the the trees in uh, in Tierra del Fuego don't grow back because they're growing upside down. Uh, <laughs> I, I would assume that. I, though you'd think that would make it easier for the tree to grow if it's growing upside down. <laughs> but um, you know, um, Heidi, while we're on this and uh, sort of people's misconceptions about beavers. By the way, that beaver story reminds me so much of the introduction of the mongoose uh, to the Caribbean <laughs> islands. The yeah, I, it's a get rich quick scheme gone awry. Right, the mongoose what was... were they thinking introducing an animal with a huge fur coat right. into South America anyway? The mongoose was, of course, brought in to control snakes. The mongoose right. killed all the snakes uh, on every island in the first 15 minutes they were there, and they've spent the ensuing, you know, 50 years knocking over garbage cans. But, um... Heidi, one thing I know that kind of bothers you is that we everybody talks about a beaver like they know what they're talking about, that people, people routinely mistake other animals for the a beaver. Even though as a kid I grew up really loving animals and knowing a lot about animals, I, somehow or other I never understood there was something called a nutria. Every time someone would tell me that there was this thing called a nutria, I would say, well, that can't be the name of an animal. But, but I, I know that you do feel as though people think they're looking at beavers and they're looking at something else. Yeah. Well, um, the Nutria is an interesting story because it's sort of the story of America doing exactly what South America did, supposedly, which is to bring in an animal that didn't belong here because we wanted it for the fur trade. And this animal is extremely destructive. It's considered a negative keystone species. It's chewing things, and, of course, it doesn't build dams. But the problem is that... Um, Whenever you see a photo on the news that is of a beaver, it may or may not be a beaver. Very often, they're using um, stock footage that is actually a nutria. And, uh, you know, I've gotten kind of, there are very rare cases where this is actually um, solved and reported differently. But um, in fact, people misunderstand nutria. And the reason this matters is because it's sort of like mistaking goofus for gallant. I mean, they're, they're very different animals. They cause very different effects. And, um, and so I really want to be able to 
help people know the difference as much as possible. The other thing that makes it even more confusing is that nutria is actually the Spanish word for otter. So um, it couldn't be more mixed up. No, it couldn't be more mixed up. All right, we have to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we will be bringing aboard uh, the Springsteen of Beaver Relocation, and, and maybe even more than that. Sherry Tippy is going to join us. to be back here at the Laugh Lodge, America's number one comedy club for beavers. How's everybody enjoying those birch bark appetizers? Try the fern lasagna. You won't regret it. So listen, anybody hear about the enormous rodent with an obnoxious musical career? His name is Justin Beaver. Beaver audiences are so easy. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Jackie Filson is our intern. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mel Gibson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff fighting a beaver for the last piece of sapling, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back. Um, when we first uh, started thinking about doing this show, uh, we realized there were a lot of great people that you could get as a guest. And we got some fabulous guests. We're so grateful, grateful to Jim Robbins and Rachel Poliquin and Heidi Perriman, who's still with us. But there really is one rock star of this world, and that's Sherry Tippy. She's the top live tra- trapper of beavers in North America. She rescues beavers uh, in Colorado and rehabilitates and locates them to areas where the ponds they create will be needed. And one of the reasons I think that she has emerged as such a, lo- a rock star is that in some ways she is such a an unlikely uh, wildlife friend. Uh, Sherry Tippy. one of the things that you uh, usually say right off the bat, I think, is you're not somebody who really goes camping and stuff like that, right? You're a hairdresser? No way do I go camping. I believe in Bigfoot, and I know he'd come and get me. (laughs) Right. So how did you get involved with beavers? I mean, you're really involved with beavers. This is both an ecological crusade and a love affair, I think it's fair to say. Well, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, I believe in the earth, and I believe that the earth supports us, and, and beaver are right there, especially in an arid environment, to, to provide water for us, which is our lifeblood, really. So explain what it is you do. First of all, how, how do you trap a beaver, and, and then how are you able to reintroduce them to, to other areas? Well, what we do is we go out in early evening, and uh, we set up these Hancock traps. They're very large. When the beaver get in them, they're not hurt. 
uh, the very next morning we go back and we take all the traps away. And if we have beaver, we bring them home. I always want to make sure that we get the whole family since beaver made for life and they're monogamous. Yeah, okay. so I, I know I heard you say one thing in one, in one of the documentaries. You say, I, I'm not getting these beavers out of a catalog. So whatever I get, whatever the family is, that's what's going to the next place. Right. You might get a new mated pair or you might get a family that has just started mating, which means they'll have very few kids, maybe one, maybe two. Or you might get a, a, a pair that's got yearlings and kids. One time I caught eight beaver and they were all related. Um, so, um, you know, I think one thing that's um, hard for people to appreciate or, or maybe even believe in, somehow or other the idea that uh, you can capture an animal in one place and release it in another, it just seems like that's never going to work or the animal's going to try to get back to wherever, wherever it was you found it in the first place. I mean, how well do these beaver relocate and adapt to the places you bring them to? Well, they relocate very well, in fact. When beaver were almost trapped out into extinction, one of the ways they brought them back was on horseback. Um, I believe that there was a remote area in, um, uh, I don't know, Montana, Idaho, someplace like that. And they put them in a box and then dropped them from a helicopter. And I don't know how many beaver there were, but they only had two, two deaths. Hmm. So that, that that is impressive. Um, but I guess the other thing that you have to think about um, uh, is that beavers, they do have predators, right? They have, There are um, animals that will prey on them. So as you introduce them to say, I mean, a rancher might want beavers in order to, to create more water for livestock. But ranchers also have uh, other big uh, and ferocious animals uh, that are prowling around anyway. How, how does that work out? Well, sometimes it doesn't. We gave beaver to a hunting ranch um, 42 miles west of uh, Colorado Springs. They have a huge hunting ranch. People come from all over the world to, to, to get elk, and he needs the beaver desperately. His mother, who's, not, who's 81 years old, used to swim with the beaver in the pond. And when, every time I bring beaver back, she, she cries. She's so happy to see him. But for a while, lions were getting some of them. But we kept it up, and then they started building dams. Now he has the biggest dam on his property that he has ever seen, and he is more than thrilled. Uh, that is terrific. Heidi Perryman, I can hear you there in the background as Sherry Tippy is talking. Um, in Martinez, California, and the places you've seen this, do the, do the beavers have predators? Are there things in California that are, are eating the beavers? There are certainly predators, even in California. Um, coyote, bobcat, um, lots of other kind of uh, interactions with animals can be dangerous for beaver, obviously. But the biggest problem for beavers is is has two legs and walks, and it talks. <laughs> it's we're the biggest problem for them, and uh, we pretty much wiped them out. Um, so it's remarkable that they even made it back. I mean, Sherry Tippy, watching footage of you with these animals, it, it really is clear that you're, as I say, involved in a very important environmental mission. But there seems to be a kind of an emotional bond that you have with them, too. I mean, can you, can you, I mean, do you feel as though this, that this is kind of a love affair, that some, something inside you really loves these beavers? I'm connected to probably all wildlife, but yeah, mostly beaver. Um, when, I, when I first started trapping, uh, before, before, I loved all wildlife. I cared about soil erosion. I cared about biodiversity. I cared about 
um, the aquifer, us, you know, depleting the aquifer. Um, I, I just cared about everything, moves me, just anything you can imagine. And, but gee, Manny, that's like a big job ahead of you. Well, when I started live trapping beaver, here I had this little animal that I picked up and started loving since I'm not a biologist. I mean, it's my natural, I just want to love everything. And this little doggone beaver, he just like looked at me and, and didn't mind at all. And I started reading about them because I found them so interesting. So what I found out was, what I found out was amazing. I found out that by concentrating on beaver, I had all those other things covered. Um, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's the amount of work, the least amount of work for the biggest bang. You get what I mean? Yeah, Heidi, did you want to say something about that? Yeah, what I just want to say is um, I just want to clarify that um, not every state allows relocation of beaver, even though it would be good for them. So uh, my state of California, relocation is illegal. Cal um, there are many states uh, in the West and in the East, in fact, most, where it's not, you're not allowed to move beaver from a place where they're causing a problem into a place where they would do good. That's amazing. And so is that something that you've had to bump up against, Sherry Tippy? Well, you know, timing is everything. And back in 1985, when I started live trapping beaver, it was all over the newspaper that they were going to kill 200 beaver in the Platte River. And I'd been trapping a little bit, taking beaver from golf courses and stuff. And the Division of Wildlife really didn't know what to do with me. I had too many people on my side. And when I went to the division to borrow their traps, I took the press with me. So they looked like jerks if they didn't let me borrow their doggone traps. And it was just a matter of timing. Our Division of Wildlife had never had a non-hunting person approach them the way that I did. And um, I was very, <laughs> I was in every newspaper, magazine, everything at the time. And it was really like them being overwhelmed. Plus, what they thought, because the way that I looked and everything, little bit, I was still a lot different then, a lot younger. They thought that I was maybe going to move a couple beaver and it was going to be too much for me and I'd go along my way. Well, let me tell you, live trapping these beaver are the most fun I have ever had. It's like my religion because it ties in with everything that I believe that supports life. Um, we're running out of time, but how many beaver later are, is this? Uh, they thought you'd give up after two or three beaver. Uh, how many beaver has it been since then? Oh, my God. I don't know. Um, I, I, I should have kept track, I know, but it, it, I don't know. I, I didn't, All you right. know. But hundred, um, hundreds, I'm assuming. My, hundreds. My trapping season is very short. Hmm. It only lasts about two and a half months because that's the time that we can take them and get their family and relocate them all together. I will not separate families. I, There's yes. a lot of commercial trappers here who relocate beaver. Well, they, they kill them, actually. They'll just put them out in the dead of winter. They freeze to death. Sherry Dibby, have to have a home. Sherry yes, Dibby, we're going to have to go. It's been so great to have you on. Thanks very much also to Betsy Kaplan. If you have any questions about, about beavers, please uh, email them to Betsy Kaplan. She knows a lot about them by now. Greg, you want to come to my lodge later? I used my teeth to whittle a folding chair with an attached ottoman. That's nothing. I used my teeth to whittle a solar-powered 42-inch flat screen. 